Morning, everyone. Happy uh, Sunday morning. Now that's a map, Nathan. Nice. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. It's, uh, I spent about 30 seconds on that. So, <laughs> so this is our um, <clears throat> study in Mark. We're starting chapter 8 today, the first 21 verses. Just a quick reminder of where we left off last week at the end of chapter 7, if you weren't here or had forgotten some things. And um, maybe you recall the map that, uh, of how Jesus got to where he is in chapter 8. Uh, if you recall, he went from Capernaum there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee up to the Tyre Sidon area, and where he exercised a demon from a the young daughter of a Syrophoenician woman, who's a Gentile, of course. And from there, he went back to the Sea of Galilee through a, a little bit of a roundabout way. Um, but he didn't go back to Capernaum, but he went to the region on the other side of the sea, the region of Decapolis, which is on the, the east side there of the Sea of Galilee. And again, this is Gentile territory. He was there once before, if you re- recall, uh, where he let some demons take over some pigs. That's a, a teaching that, that Bill had, had done a few weeks ago. And remember, people were scared when he did that, and they asked him to leave. They told him that, to get out, but he came back. He's back there again, and as Bill mentioned last week, he came back because he was getting a lot of attention wherever he went. Loads of people, hordes of people were following him everywhere, thousands of people. And he obviously knew that there were people in this region of Decapolis that needed to hear what he had to say. Gentile people needed to hear what he had to say. And so that's where we pick it up here in chapter 8. So we'll start with reading the text first 21 verses of chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So even if you've only been casually paying attention during this study of Mark over the last few months now, you probably recognize some familiar things in this passage. Things like Jesus feeding large groups of people with minimal amounts of food. The Pharisees show up again arguing with Jesus. This time they want a sign, and as before, he gets in the boat, leaves the Pharisees, and this time he goes to the other side of the lake again. And at the end, we see Jesus alone with his disciples. This is kind of how the order of things go. So the title I've chosen for this is, There's Plenty of Bread for Everyone. And the theme that I hope to make evident here is that Jesus is the all-sufficient bread of life. So let's start looking at, at the text here. So the first section, the first nine verses, is the feeding of the 4,000. And at a glance, it feels like deja vu, right? You kind of think, did I already hear something about feeding large groups of people a few weeks ago? And after all, aside from a number of people fed, it sounds like the same story from chapter 6. Both occur in desolate spaces. Both are focused on Jesus' compassion for the great crowds. In both... Jesus asks, how many loaves do you have? Jesus' prayer and the participation of the disciples is there as well. And a lot of the words and serving of the loaves follow the same sequence. And in both, it says that the people were satisfied. Leftovers were gathered in both stories. And Jesus dismisses the crowds, jumps in a boat at the end of each, and leaves as well. So this is all very familiar with what I think Bill taught a few weeks ago in chapter 6, where Jesus fed the 5,000. In fact, many scholars, and I was surprised to hear this, believe that Mark is actually explaining the same event twice. And one of the main arguments is that it doesn't make sense that the disciples would never wonder where they would be able to get food for all the people. Again, since it already happened once before, why would they ask that again? I was honestly a bit surprised to hear that, that there were scholars who believed this was based on that argument. My initial simple man argument against that would be that Mark's efficient structure and order of text doesn't really support the retelling of the exact same story twice. That just doesn't seem to be his thing. And now we see Mark write about similar things happening, but in different contexts. I, I just explained this, right? We know the teaching, the healing, the exorcism, and now feeding large groups of people Each event seems very much the same, but there's always a new teaching that's revealed. And that's what's happening here. There are some substantial differences between the two stories that really make the case for the fact that, yes, these were two very distinct events. Also, Jesus calls this out in verses 19 through 20. (laughs) So we'll get to the importance of that fact this morning as well. So some some key differences just quickly. So the 5,000 were with Jesus for only one day. But what does our text tell us here in verse 2? The crowd had been with him for three days. 
Even if it was two days, one could make the argument that, well, you know, they arrived Tuesday, it was late in the afternoon, they didn't get going again until Wednesday, so late at night. So yeah, it could be one to two days, you know, but three days compared to one day is a real distinction here. The second thing, the actual number of people is obviously distinctive. For the first event in chapter 6, we read that there were 5,000 men, indicating women, children were also included. There would be substantially more people there, maybe up to 15,000 or more. In the chapter 8 text, however, verse 9 tells us that there were 4,000 people. So it's commonly assumed that this included men, women, and children, which would mean there are substantially less people here versus the first feeding, not just the thousand uh, difference you'd have. <clears throat> Another difference, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus ordered them to sit down in ordered groups on the green grass in chapter 6. Do you remember this? Green grass. I went back and looked at it. Green grass. Never really noticed that before. It's not just grass, but green grass. <clears throat> In our text, it's just listed as the ground. There's no grass mentioned. Now, I know grass grows on the ground. But do you know what I'm going to say next, right? The, the words that Mark uses, remember his style? Every word is super important. And so the things that we think are meaningless are still important. So the omission of words in certain senses is also important. So if he mentions that they sat in the green grass... In one story, and they just sat on the ground in another story, it, it seems that's a subtle method of making these two events distinctive. And just the fact that there's grass in one and not the other could indicate even a seasonal difference. In that part of the world, grass really only appears in the spring. In other seasons, there isn't any grass. It's all dried up or gets eaten by animals in the hot climate, and it, you know, it's just the way it is. So these are subtle differences. Also notice in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus offers just one prayer of thanks for the food, the loaves and the fish. This is in chapter 6, verse 41. And for the 4,000, Jesus offers two prayers, one for the loaves and one for the fish. And note the amount of food that he started with. For the 5,000, he started with five loaves and two fish. For the 4,000, he used seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. In the first miracle, the disciples collected 12 small baskets of bread after all the people were full and satisfied. And after the people were full in the second miracle, the disciples collected seven large baskets of leftovers. Now, the most translations use the word basket. The ESV uses basket, and so it, it doesn't seem like there is a difference there. But if you go back to the original Greek, which I found in one of the commentaries I have access to, um, the first word for basket, kafinos, is thought to be a smaller, stiff, wicker-like basket. For the second, the word is spirus, which is known. It's actually the same word that, to describe the basket in Acts 9.25 that Paul used. This was the device that he was used, was used to lower him through the opening in the city wall in Damascus. So these were large baskets, enough to, to carry a man. And there were seven of these full of leftovers. So think about how much leftover food that is. So I know this is a bit tedious, and I'm, I'm done with the differences now. And I didn't even include all of them here, by the way. But I want you to come to the realization that this is not just a retread of the previous story from a few weeks ago. 
It's a unique event and it has unique purpose for its inclusion here. So Mark does not indicate the exact locations of these two events either, and we talked about this a few weeks ago as well. For the, the first feeding, we're given a general idea from the text in chapter 6. We know it's near the western side of the Sea of Galilee, predominantly Jewish territory. And it's reasonable that the people in attendance for the first feast were likely mostly Jews. For the second feeding, we surmise that he's still where he was at the end of chapter 7 the region of Decapolis, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee there. And this was prominently Gentile territory. We know that from previous texts as well. And while he was told to leave the last time he was around these parts, this time the crowd was actually gathering around him. They really wanted to be with Jesus. Look again at what it says in verses 2 and 3. They have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Have you ever followed someone around for three days? Think about what it would take for you to follow someone around in the wilderness for three days in a busy crowd of thousands of people. Just think of the logistics of the situation. This crowd finds Jesus in the region. Word probably gets out. People keep coming. Some probably really don't know who he is, but they've heard about him. So they they take a few days off work, head down to Decapolis and find out what all the fuss is about. And a lot of them probably were not planning on sticking around for more than a few hours, maybe a day at most. But instead, they end up staying for three days. And any food scraps that may have been lurking around that people had brought with them, Those are gone after three days, and there's nothing to buy out there. There's no concession stands. There's no Kroger. That's a big deal. So I was thinking a little bit about this in in the context of our our present day. And What if we took 4,000 people and put them out in the middle of a desolate field for three days with no food, nowhere to go? They're just stuck there for, you know, indefinitely, right? Things could start to get a little bit nasty. Hungry people get desperate. Large, desperate groups of hungry people can do some bad things. They could start turning on the guy that they think is in charge, right? So this is a simple detail to overlook, but it's no small thing that this crowd was showing no signs of any negative behavior, especially since this is the same region that previously kicked Jesus out. This time it was just the opposite. People were so committed to stick with Jesus, to spend time with him, to hear what he had to say, they didn't want to leave. They were showing no signs of wanting to leave. Even at the end, Jesus had to dismiss them. He speaks of having to send them away, but it's a bigger problem because some live so far away. This is mentioned in the text. I read that the region of Decapolis was rugged, with very few towns and settlements. That's why when you look at a map, there's no cities over there. It's just, yeah, this, this is Decapolis. It's, a, it's a, a desolate place. It was not a place that you'd want to be without provisions, especially for three days. So the comment that Jesus makes that they will faint on the way is not an exaggeration. And so Jesus has spent these three days in this desolate place meeting the crowd's spiritual needs, but now... The physical need of bodily nourishment becomes real and quite urgent. And Jesus has compassion. 
his heart aches for these people. And again, the Greek word for compassion that's used here denotes gut-wrenching emotion. And this is important because remember who's in the crowd. These people are not close friends of Jesus. They aren't people he grew up with. They aren't the fellow Jews that he hangs around. No, these are the outcasts, the offensive, the unclean, the Gentiles. And he has gut-wrenching emotion because they're suffering. And let's be frank. If any of us went without food for three days, in a desolate place no less, we would be suffering, right? This would be a major thing. It's something we would tell people about. So in verse 4, we see disciples respond to Jesus by asking the question, how are we going to feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Recall, this, this was the verse that I mentioned in my intro about why some scholars think that this is just a retelling of a previous story. They say, why would the disciples ask such a stupid question like this when they previously witnessed what Jesus could do previously, previously right? It doesn't make any sense. But if you think about it, it, it actually does make sense. In, in the feeding of the 5,000 the disciples expressed their skepticism at the possibility of providing food for the crowd, a much bigger crowd. They answered almost sarcastically, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread for them to eat? This was in chapter 6 now. It wasn't something they believed was possible for them to accomplish, but they still offered an unreasonable solution. And they had only been with this crowd for a day. In our text, the disciples' reaction is quite different in verse 4. They don't make any suggestions. They recognize they're powerless to do anything and throw it back at Jesus to solve. And recall that the disciples were not pressuring Jesus to perform miracles of any kind. Most of that came from his opponents, if you recall. And we'll see this again in the later verses. So the disciples knew Jesus' servant posture enough to know not to prod him for miraculous intervention. One of the commentaries, William Lane writes, it would have been presumptuous for the disciples to have accomplished, assumed that Jesus would, as a matter of course, just multiply a few loaves as he had done on an earlier occasion. Jesus is not a vendor of miracles. We know this. His miraculous activity comes to people especially the disciples, as wholly wondrous and unanticipated activity. So this reality, coupled with the other details outlined previously, just drives home the fact that, yes, again, this scholarly argument is, is not well supported, and this feeding of the 4,000 is indeed, again, a unique event in Christ's ministry. The Gentile audience needed to be exposed to this miracle and its implications, and for the disciples, even though they had learned something from the first miracle, they still had more to learn. And we see this in the latter half of this passage, where Jesus longed for his disciples to grow in both spiritual understanding and to nurture and maintain that understanding. So there's at least three things in this section that Christ wants us to see in this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. The first is actually the same as in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that he is the bread of life. As the second Moses, Christ consciously paralleled himself with their ancient father. It was through Moses that God announced he was going to rain down bread from heaven. We see this in Exodus 16. 
And that promise was fulfilled. And while the manna, which was the bread of heaven, was physical sustenance for Israel, the implications of Jesus being the bread of life explain virtually everything about his person and his mission in life. The miraculous multiplication showed his omnipotence, and the metaphor of bread illustrated his suffering. We're reminded of this when we celebrate communion, the broken bread representing Christ's beaten body on the cross. The second thing that Christ wants us to know about this, or his disciples to know and understand, is that he was not just bread for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. The bread miracle among the Gentiles meant that Jesus was spiritual bread for the pagan world, the non-Jewish world, and this includes us. The disciples needed to understand that Jesus is the universal bread. There's no other saving power than through him. He's the only way. We, we praise him for this. The third thing that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand, that supply always meets and exceeds the demand. It always meets and exceeds the demand. He kept breaking the bread and handing it out so that people needing it were able to get it until they were satisfied. And all the leftovers, after everyone had had enough, were seven huge man-sized baskets full of food. I don't want to get too carried away here, but even the number, the type of baskets are obviously kind of symbolic here. Remember after the 5,000 Jews had eaten and were satisfied, there were 12 smaller baskets left over. And these represent probably the 12 tribes of Israel. But here there are seven huge baskets left over, and the number seven is often associated in the scriptures with fullness and completion. And Christ is more than sufficient for everyone that would receive him. And again, we shouldn't go overboard in spiritualizing numbers, but I, I thought these were some good observations. And remember again something else we've talked about before in this series. Mark's original audience of persecuted Roman Christians, many of them were Gentiles. Think about how encouraging this would be for them to be reminded of these things, that Christ is more than sufficient for everyone that would receive him. Just something to keep in mind as well. And so the first 10 verses of this section of, of chapter 8 is Jesus revealing who he is, the bread of life for Jews and Gentiles and sufficient for all. The second section, verses 11 through 13, is more about the continued blindness of the Pharisees. And this isn't a surprise that the Pharisees are blind. Every time we see interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees, their blindness to who he is, to who Jesus is, is on full display. So just like the end of the last feeding, Jesus dismissed the crowd, as I mentioned, gets into a boat and goes to a place called Dalmanutha. We're not really sure where Dalmanutha is because this is the only time it's actually mentioned in the scriptures, as well as the entirety of known ancient literature, which I thought was sort of fascinating. But based on a lot of archaeological clues and details, which I won't get into, it's widely believed that it's near the region of Capernaum and Gennesaret, which we've looked at before on the northwest side there of the Sea of Galilee. 
And the Pharisees are still there in the Capernaum area. And Mark is really showing how they're just hounding Jesus whenever he's nearby. You start to get the impression that they're just waiting for him to show up again so they can start accosting him. And this time's no different. They're asking him this time for a sign from heaven. And the language that's being used here gets a bit muddled in the translation to English. So I'm not going to go for, too, too far down the rabbit hole here, but I want to give a sense of the feeling in the room or the field or wherever they were from the, the Greek words being used. The word for came out is actually used to reference rank and file military presence. This is the, the Pharisees came out to Jesus. So it indicates that they didn't casually walk up and start having a conversation. They were organized. They probably all lined up in some sort of rank and file as if they had rehearsed this, this very moment, to confront Jesus in this way and maybe even intimidate him a little bit. The word for asked or seeking, and this is one that Mark uses a lot. I'm not going to give you the Greek words here because, quite frankly, they all sound the same to us. But the word for asked or seeking, and this is one that Mark uses a lot in, 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 his, in his gospel, it means to attempt to gain control of. We know this is the Pharisees' ultimate goal, of course. They've lost a lot of control since Jesus showed up on the scene, and they want it back, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it back. And finally, the word for test is not really referring to an objective test, the way we would think of it, to discover maybe the, the merit or prove something out. Rather, it's referring to an obstacle or a stumbling block to discredit the subject. It occurs four times in Mark's gospel. Three of the four times are, no surprise, concerned with the Pharisees, in the subject of the Pharisees. The first use of it, though, is with Satan's temptation of Christ in the wilderness all the way back in chapter 1. And this is relevant because this occurrence in chapter 8 is really nothing more than a repeat of, of Satan's attempt to, to tempt Jesus. Get him to do some, some serious, awesome work in the name of giving Christ the kingdoms of the world. This was a temptation to take the easy way, apart from the Father's will, and Jesus, just like before, would have no part of it. Recall, of course, that the Pharisees had already seen great signs, and they couldn't deny them as great signs. In chapter 3, Jesus was casting out demons, you recall this, and they attributed this great sign, this miraculous sign, to Beelzebul, a demon. They didn't give Jesus the credit for it. Why would they do so if another sign was shown to them? Jesus' response to this in verse 12 is that he sighed deeply in his spirit. And this was not an expression of anger or indignation, but rather dismay and despair. Not unlike God's disgust with the stubborn resistance of the Israelites in the wilderness. These two were a disbelieving generation of people that turned their back on God and were not faithful. And Jesus' statement here, Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. This first part, truly I say to you, was used only once before in Mark with reference to the scribes accusing Jesus of complicitly in, in, in cahoots with the devil, right? I referenced this in chapter 3. It's, it's verse 22 just a bit ago. So the fact that it is repeated here 
suggests the Pharisees' antagonism is in league with the opposition from that passage as well. And again, that's not a surprise. The second part of verse 12 is another one of these difficult to translate into English phrases. The phrase is more literally, if shall be given to this generation a sign, and then the conclusion is not stated, which might be something like, may God punish me or may I die, something like that. It would be like me telling my dog, you better not get up on the couch or I'll, something like that. So this, this characteristic of Hebrew oath, this is a characteristic of, of Hebrew oaths. It obviously is used to suggest intense emotion. Jesus knew, of course, the hardness of their hearts, and their demand for signs is nothing more than an attempt to gain by empirical means that can only be gained by faith and trust. Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only thinly veiled doubt. Faith cannot be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. And that's a slightly paraphrased quote from James Edwards, one of the commentaries I used. Jesus knew the Pharisees would not be changed by a sign. There was nothing more to do here. So the text is fairly complete in this. He gets back in the boat with his disciples and goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that brings us to the third and final part of the passage, verses 14 through 21. And this was probably the most difficult section, at least for me, both to read and to fully understand everything that's happening. But right away, you get the sense that even though Jesus and the disciples were together in the boat, their minds were in totally different places. Jesus was giving them a spiritual warning, but they were, they were missing the boat. That's a pun for Bill over there. Given the recent series of events, the repeated feeding of a large group of thousands of people, it's a bit hard to watch, honestly, because Jesus is noticeably exasperated. The topic, of course, is bread, but they're not discussing the same type of bread. The disciples are lamenting that they only have one loaf in the boat with them. Jesus sees this as a teachable moment. Again, this is something we've seen before. Jesus uses these alone times with his disciples for teaching teachable moments. He warns about the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And in rabbinic literature, as, as most of us probably know, yeast is a metaphor typically refer, as refers to the tendency or intent of the human heart. And it's usually in a bad sense. There's actually only one instance in Matthew and then another one in Luke where it carries a positive metaphorical sense. But in every other use, it connotes corruption, unholiness, and danger. And of course, here in relation to the Pharisees and Herod, it is clearly a negative warning. So there are several thoughts on the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. And some say Jesus was warning the disciples about the evil teaching of the Pharisees on the one hand and the, the power-crazy Herod on the other hand. Another explanation suggests that Herod, like the Pharisees, wanted Jesus to show him a miracle from heaven. Both then were unsatisfied with the signs that they had already observed and preferred to see signs of their own choosing. The warning then was not to be convinced by the miracles you have seen and covet not to see more. Another explanation, and the most logical one in my view, 
seems to take into the overall theme of Mark, which is why I think it makes the most sense. Um, It takes into account that the Pharisees and Herod were unified only in the fact that both opposed Jesus. Their opposition is the result, of course, of their unbelief of who he is. And this disbelief appears to be fermenting, to continue the use of the, the yeast metaphor, among the disciples in the boat. Therefore, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod appears to be the the misunderstanding or even disbelief of the disciples. And if left to itself, this yeast could cause this disbelief to rise to the same level as that of the Pharisees and Herod. That is a shocking thought. And the disciples were completely oblivious to this. You see this in the text. They're still talking about the fact that they have no bread. Jesus is telling them that they're on their way to becoming Pharisees, and they're discussing they've only got one loaf of bread. And this danger is even more deceptive, especially in their case since they are in daily contact with Jesus, much like his mother and his brothers from chapter 3. And this may lead them to presume that they are also with him in purpose and mission. Their proximity to Jesus must grow into understanding, and understanding must grow into faith. Otherwise, they lose any semblance of the true meaning of his person and his work. And Jesus wisely identifies this as a serious issue, and we see this exasperation boil over here in the subsequent verses. He fires off a series of very pointed questions. Verse 17, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And these questions are, of course, asked in such a way that Christ is both scolding and pleading with the disciples at the same time. You sense this, right? And verse 18 is the harshest of these questions. Recall that this same kind of question was used back in In chapter 4, verse 12, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the outsiders, those who were not given the secret of the kingdom of God, like the disciples had. They were the insiders. But now it's being applied to the disciples. James Edwards gives a great explanation of the importance of what we're discussing here. Failure to understand leads to hardened hearts. The plea for understanding is a reminder that Faith is not separate from understanding, but is possible only through understanding. If intellectual and spiritual blindness lead to hardness of heart, then blind faith without content must inevitably lead there as well. The faith for which Jesus appeals is a faith born of understanding and insight. The disciples were not being chastised for not believing, but for not seeing and understanding. Seeing with those, those spiritual eyes and hearing with the, the spiritual ears that we talked about in previous lessons. The disciples were anxious about their lack of bread, but Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. Jesus concludes his questions with a reminder of the results of the feeding of the five and the four thousands, in verses 19 and 20. He says, When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. 
and the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. You can kind of hear the meekness in their voice. They didn't elaborate. They just answered with the numbers, 12 and 7. He's, he's shifting the subject back to actual bread, in which they're presently lacking, of course, reminding them of the baskets full of bread that they recently witnessed, yet still doubting his sufficiency now that they're in the boat. If the disciples had truly reflected on the spiritual significance of these miracle feasts, they would have advanced far beyond their current state of spiritual growth. They would have seen Jesus for who he was, the bread of life for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, sufficient for all. But Mark ends this passage with one final question from Jesus to the disciples. And it's not really a continuation of the rebuke, since it's after the questions of verses 19 and 20, which reminded them of what just happened. Christ says in verse 21, Do you not yet understand? And it's kind of the sense that now that I've reminded you that there were 12 baskets left from the Jewish feeding and the seven man-sized hampers full of food left after the Gentile feeding, do you still not understand that I am the bread of life for the world? A very pointed question. And we'll see in subsequent uh, verses of this chapter how that goes and um, ultimately Christ's position, who he is, will be made known to the disciples. But that's where we're going to end it today. But let us see this applied to our lives as well. May we see the true intent and meaning of God's favors to us. May we not be overwhelmed with the present cares and worries because of things, quite frankly, we don't understand. And may we remember the times that we have known and seen the power and goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've all seen that, right? May we put our full trust in him, the all-sufficient bread of life for the Jew and the Gentile. Let's, let's pray just briefly. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this timely reminder that you are everything that we need, the all-sufficient bread of life. Lord, may we not be distracted by the, the single loaf of bread that we have in our boat. May you remind us of your promises and your never-ending grace. Guide us and direct us, Lord. We love you. Amen.